In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. There's a story about Teddy Roosevelt when he was out in the West doing his ranching and adventuring, as he's known for. At one point, a couple of guys steal his boat. And Teddy Roosevelt, um, being the guy he is, uh, mounts up and track, tracks these guys through the wilderness for, I think, a period of about two weeks. He spends tracking these guys through the wilderness. And he, sure enough, he finds them. He tracks them down, and he gets his boat back from these guys, and he brings them to justice. But that's not the amazing part of the story. The amazing part of the story is that Teddy Roosevelt, as he was tracking these gentlemen through the wilderness for two weeks trying to recover his boat, also somehow found time to read the entirety of Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, a novel of some 700 pages. Who, who knows how, how people, people have that kind of energy. So sometimes what amazes us about great men is not just what they accomplish, but what they accomplish on their way to accomplishing something else. They seem to have time not just to get the work done, but to throw in something extra. And in this passage from uh, Matthew, which has parallel passages in the other synoptic gospels, we see a double miracle. Jesus is on his way to perform one healing, and we get a bonus healing throw in, thrown in just along the way. Why, why is it so important that we know that this one healing was on the way to a different healing? Different people have different ways of telling stories, and we'll see minor variations in the way the different evangelists have related this story, but they are all very insistent on the fact that we know that this one healing happened while Jesus was on the way to a different healing. And so there seems to be some significance in this that we should pay attention to. Well, one thing I think we can say for certain is that by putting these two stories together, we are taught to closely juxtapose these two individuals who receive miracles, both this woman and this man. And... They have some things that are common between them, and they have some differences about their situation, but I think by putting these two stories together, we can draw some contrasts. The very facts of this passage are simple to relate and simple to summarize. A gentleman who's a leader of a synagogue, we would think of him as being kind of a pastor or a religious leader, head of a church today has uh, a daughter who's uh, recently deceased. And he has confidence that Jesus can bring her back from the dead. On the way there to heal his daughter, a woman in the crowd who's had a health ailment for 12 years uh, reaches out and touches the hem of Jesus' garment and, and is healed. He stops to talk to her, and then he goes on to heal the daughter and raise her from the dead. Very, very simple story in terms of the basic facts. But what are we to derive or learn from these facts? Well, we've got two people here who are both at the end of their rope, but for different reasons. 
and two people who are in desperate situations, um, but in different conditions of life. As I said, one of them is the leader of a synagogue. He's a prominent person in his community. He's known and respected and powerful. And his situation is that he has a daughter. The other evangelists relate the fact that this daughter is about 12 years old. And uh, this daughter has passed away. Now, um, Matthew is actually a lot more compressed in the way he tells this story than some of the other gospel writers. We usually think of Mark as being the evangelist that tends to compress his stories the most. He's the associated press version of the gospel, right? But it's actually Matthew that compresses a lot of details together here. If you read Mark's account or Luke's account, um, when they first get to Jesus with the news that this... um, that they want him to perform this healing, the daughter is in danger of death, is on the point of death, but hasn't yet died. And in the other evangelist accounts, it's actually as Jesus is on his way out there to heal her that she finally passes away. And at that point, um, the servants of the ruler of the synagogue feel that all hope is lost. But Matthew kind of compresses those details together. He sort of skips that part and just brings us to the point of the young girl being dead. But it's clear that this man approaches Jesus in faith that he's able to remedy this situation, Uh, that even death itself is not something that's too much for Jesus. And this man probably has in mind uh, Elijah and Elisha, some of the great saints of the Old Testament, that were able, through prayer and intercession and the laying on of hands, able to raise uh, even the dead. And that's no doubt why he says, come back to my house and lay your hands upon her and she will live. I have the confidence, he says, that you are a figure like Elijah or Elisha who is able to perform that kind of miracle as God's scriptures have related to me. And, of course, what he doesn't realize is that someone far greater than Elijah and Elisha is before him. He doesn't realize his faith is not quite strong enough to grasp the fact that Jesus has no need to go to his house. Jesus has no need to lay hands upon this young girl. With a mere word, Jesus can heal her, as he did with the centurion's servant. We know that there's no kinds of limits to Jesus' power of the kind that this ruler thinks there are. But Jesus doesn't rebuke him for that or correct him. He just goes along with his plan of going back to the house and laying hands on his daughter. Now, this daughter, according to um, the other gospel writers, is his only daughter. It's It's probably his only child. And she's about 12 years of age. So for the last 12 years, this man has taken joy in his daughter, seeing her grow up, looking forward to seeing her uh, grow into full womanhood, getting married, having children of her own. These are all the wonderful joys that he's had to look forward to over the past 12 years. And suddenly those joys are taken away from him. The rug is pulled out from underneath him. And he thinks everything might be lost. 
But as his joys have been growing for the last 12 years, someone else's despair has only deepened. For the last 12 years, there's a woman in the crowd who's been dealing with a condition where she has uh, a a flow of blood coming from her body that can't be stopped. For 12 years, according to the other gospel writers, she has gone to physicians and uh, people who were specialists in medicine to try to treat her for this condition, and there has been no improvement. In fact, it's only gotten worse. Now, blood loss leads to all sorts of physical consequences. She no doubt was weak and frail much of the time, uh, probably in very sickly condition. But even more than that, there were social sanctions and social customs that would have been imposed on this woman that would have made her life even worse. According to the Old Testament law, someone who has a flow of blood from their body is unclean. That means that they cannot be in holy places. She would not have been allowed to enter the temple. She would not have, perhaps not have been allowed even to attend synagogue and would have led a life of social isolation because anybody who comes into contact with her also becomes unclean. So she has, uh, for the last 12 years, has um, been in deeper and deeper despair from a condition that has robbed her of her energy, robbed her of her joy, robbed her of even her ability to associate with other people or practice religion. And you might ask yourself, who's in the worst condition? The ruler of the synagogue, whose joy has increased these last 12 years and now seems to be in danger of being taken away from him? Or is this woman in the uh, worst condition as she's had to deal with this worsening health condition for the past 12 years? And of course, the evangelists also relate to us as she's uh, seeking this treatment, which did not help her. She's also been expending her money. Evidently, she was a woman of some means, a woman of some wealth, but her financial resources have been exhausted by these years of unfruitful treatment. So she is economically, personally, religiously at the end of her rope as well. But she has faith that Jesus can make her whole. The translation says make her whole, but uh, the verb there used in Greek is the same verb for to save. She says, if I can only touch the hem of his garment, I will be saved. And so in some ways, she has a greater confidence in Jesus's power than the ruler of the synagogue. The ruler of the synagogue thinks that Jesus needs to actually come out and lay hands on his daughter for her to be healed. This woman has such a confidence in Jesus's power She realizes that even a physical contact with his clothing is going to, as it were, hook her up to the power of Jesus and enable her to be saved and for her body to be made whole. And sure enough, that's that's what happens. Now, she doesn't obviously address herself to Jesus like the, the ruler of the synagogue does. She doesn't say, get his attention and say, hey, I have this problem, can you heal me, or anything like that. Um, partly, probably, because her situation is an embarrassing and a, and a somewhat shameful one for her. Uh, possibly also because 
she, as an unclean person, should, shouldn't be touching anyone, really, much less a, a holy man and a, a rabbi and a teacher. So she has this confidence in Jesus' power that's mixed with this reticence and doubt and reluctance. But by touching Jesus, she doesn't make him unclean. She makes herself holy. And that's a pattern we see consistently with Jesus in Scripture. He is not contaminated by the unholiness of anyone else, but rather, through close contact, he can communicate his holiness to others. There is an error in the doctrine of Roman Catholicism known as the Immaculate Conception. Not to be confused, by the way, with the virgin birth, but, you know, all this terminology does get confusing at times. Uh, the Immaculate Conception is the doctrine that Mary, the mother of Christ, was conceived without original sin. Unlike every other human being since Adam, she was not uh, conceived or born with original sin. And the thinking behind this in Roman Catholicism is uh, Mary had to be the one to bear Jesus, and if she had original sin and her own sins besides, um, she was a sinful and unholy person, the same the way, the way that any of the rest of us are. And um, that would not be suitable because she had to bear Jesus Christ, who is perfectly holy. And so the reasoning is that God must have conceived Mary without original sin so that she could be a perfectly holy vessel to bear Christ. But of course, that's getting things exactly backwards, isn't it? It's not that Jesus needs a holy and sinless vessel to bear him, but it's rather that he communicates his holiness to the one that bears him. He has no fear of being contaminated by sinful humanity, but rather he is able to transfer and communicate his holiness to others. Now, uh, if you were a religious teacher trying to start your own religious movement and you were trying to curry favor with the local population, let's try, you know, try to get this thing off the ground, and you had the opportunity to spend time with someone who was himself a religious leader and a prominent member of the community, or you had time to spend with uh, a woman who's destitute and devoid of resources and devoid of influence for the community and a complete outcast, um, the sensible thing to do, of course, would be to spend time with the religious leader. He has the ability to give you a voice in that community and prominence in that community. He has the ability to lend his authority to you so that you can help spread this movement that you're trying to start. He would be the one that would make sense to spend the most time with. But Jesus sets this ruler to the side and takes time to speak to this woman because he has no need to build favor or curry favor in the community to get his movement going. He has no need to pander to the powerful and to the influential, but rather he takes time to stop and make sure that this to communicate this message of hope and mercy to this woman. He says for her to be of good cheer, cheer up, be, be joyful, your faith has made you whole, has saved you. Doesn't make any sense from a worldly perspective, but Jesus is not operating from a worldly perspective. 
Now, as he goes on from healing the woman with the flow of blood, he comes to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and to his daughter who has died. And there are few things in life that feel as final and irreversible as death. To look at someone that you've loved and cared about and to see them still and cold and not breathing or moving is a horrible experience. There's a finality to it and a cruelty to it, an irresistible force to it that seems so unnatural and yet something that nature can do nothing for. And particularly heart-wrenching and and gut-wrenching, of course, is the idea for a parent to look at his only daughter and see her in that condition. A particularly uh, grievous situation, and we see the mourners surrounding the ruler's home mourning the death of his daughter. But Jesus says she's sleeping. This is invariably the way that Jesus refers to people who have died. For him, death, which from our perspective is final and irreversible and unchallengeable, from his perspective is a mere temporary state. The way that you might go to bed tonight and fall asleep and then wake up in the morning. Our perspective on death is the wrong one. In Jesus, by saying that she only sleeps, is trying to teach us the true perspective about what death is. Death is not final. Death is not the end. One day we will all rise from our graves and from the coldness of the tomb, and we will live again, and we will see Jesus Christ come back to earth. That's that's a day that all of us are going to see. And Jesus, by raising this young girl from the dead, gives us a preview or a foretaste of what God's power is able to accomplish for all of humanity. Death itself will die, and death will be defeated. Death itself is merely a temporary sleep. So where are we today? Are we like the ruler? Have we seen our joy grow and grow over the years, and now we feel like our joy is in peril? Perhaps because someone's life is in danger, perhaps even more because someone's spiritual life is in danger. Maybe someone close to you, maybe even your child, is someone who seems to be dead in their trespasses. They have no evident faith. They do not seem to know Jesus, and they do not seem to follow Jesus. Do not give up hope. Do not give up hope, but have confidence in that Lord who is able to raise the dead. 
He is able to raise the dead who are dead physically. He is able to raise the dead who are dead spiritually. He can work miracles in the life of that person who's on your mind and who you're concerned about. Is that our condition or are we in the condition of the woman dealing for years with a chronic issue that won't go away but only gets worse and worse into the point where we've exhausted our resources, we've exhausted what we can bring to the table, and we're beginning to lose hope. If that's our condition, we too should apply ourselves to Jesus. The merest connection with him, the weakest faith, the faith that only has the confidence to reach out and touch the hem of his garment, the kind of faith that doesn't have the confidence to talk to him face to face, the kind of confidence that doesn't have the kind of faith that doesn't have the confidence to get his attention and talk to him, the merest, smallest faith that can just reach out and touch that garment is enough for Jesus. It's enough for him to turn and encourage you and say, cheer up, be of good cheer. Your faith is enough to make you whole. Jesus is not about sifting the strong faith from the weak faith. Oh, you got to have faith at least this good to get into his kingdom. A smoldering wick he will not extinguish, rather. The slightest, meanest faith is sufficient for him to turn and heal us and make us whole. But, of course, the weaker our faith, the harder the journey. We should endeavor to strengthen our faith by all the means that are available to us. The more we're reading our Bibles and the more we're praying and attending the scripture and attending church and partaking of the sacraments and hearing the word taught, the stronger our faith will be and ultimately the happier we will be, the easier of a journey that we will have. But don't think that, therefore, if your faith is weak right now, or wavering, or doesn't have the confidence to address Jesus, that you're lost. That's not true. Even the weak faith, Jesus will honor, and Jesus will turn and heal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are some right now in this community who are hurting they may have felt like the last maybe 10 or 12 years have been easy, have been a growth and happiness. And now that happiness seems to be on, in danger of being taken away. But may our faith be in you. May we have confidence that you are able to work miracles, that you are able to care for us and look after us and to make us whole. And Lord, there are some people in our community that are hurting right now, and they've been hurting for a long time. Maybe for 10 years, maybe for 20 years, maybe for 30 years, there's been something weighing on them, and it seems to just get worse and worse and worse, and they have little hope, and their faith wavers. But Lord, give us that faith to apply ourselves to you. Give us that faith to reach out and touch you, even if it's only the hem of your garment. For we know, Lord, that you will turn and save us and that you are mighty to save. We pray that you bring us 
unto your everlasting life, and that you make us whole through your almighty power. And in Jesus' name, we beg these things of you. Amen. Amen. All things come of thee, O Lord, and of thy nose.